0: Our reading this evening is taken from the first book of Kings, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. If you have a church Bible, it's page 336. 1 Kings 2, 1 to 12. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong. Show yourself a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways, and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements as written in the law of Moses, so that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me, With all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. Now you yourself know what Joab, son of Zariah, did to me. What he did to the two commanders of Israel's armies. Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jetha. He killed them, shedding their blood in peacetime as if in battle, and with that blood, stained the belt round his waist, and the sandals on his feet. Deal with him according to your wisdom, but do not let his grey head go down to the grave in peace. But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai of Gilead, and let them be among those who eat at your table. They stood by me, when I fled from your brother Absalom and remember you have with you Shimei son of Gera, the Benjamite from Bahurim who called down bitter curses on me the day I went to Mahanaim when he came down to meet me at the Jordan I swore to him by the Lord I will not put you to death by the sword but now Do not consider him innocent. You are a man of wisdom. You will know what to do to him. Bring his grey head down to the grave in blood. Then David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. He had reigned for forty years over Israel, seven years in Hebron and thirty-three in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father, David, and his rule was firmly established. Amen. I don't know how many of you
1: watched uh, Question Time this week. After all the hype, it was uh, difficult to resist the temptation to have a look and see whether the BBC were justified in inviting the leader of the BNP, Nick Griffin, to participate. Must me I got a bit bored after half an hour or so um, of everybody laying into him. Um, but what came through in the, the demonstrations outside the BBC offices and um, in the news cover this week was a, a fear, a fear of someone whose views and whose comments could provoke racial hatred. The audience was made up of carefully selected uh, representatives of our multicultural society they were all keen to live in peace. And who saw in this person a threat to that peace. After all, we don't like to see our peace and security threatened, do we? If you think of the events of 9-11 and how they came as such a shock to the American people who thought their country was effectively immune from terrorism. If we think of the events of last year with the, the banking crisis which came as a shock because, again, we don't like our economic security to be be threatened. And so bankers are seen as these evil people because they were the cause of that loss of security, economic security. Well, Sidon, we're coming to the end of a sermon series which has been entitled Trouble in Paradise, which has looked at different episodes from the period of Israel's history, from the people choosing their king, King Saul, to God's replacement of Saul with David. We have looked at David's disastrous episode with Bathsheba, and we've looked at the episode with Absalom. Various episodes where the paradise of the promised land, where God's people were to live under God's reign, was threatened. It was on the whole peace and prosperity that marked David's reign. It was, as we have heard just then, king of Israel for 40 years. And he now hands over his kingdom to his son Solomon. He gives us this charge. And after he's finished, it says there in verse 10, it says, Then David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. He had reigned for 40 years over Israel, seven years in Hebron 33 in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father David. And his rule was firmly established. Having ruled over a period of peace and prosperity, David's last wish was that Solomon would continue that reign and that it would continue to be peaceful and secure. And that is the theme that that comes up in these these verses. It was there in verse 12, but it's there throughout chapter 2. If you look on to, to verse 24, there it talks about he who has established me securely. On the throne of my father David. It's there in verse 33. On David and his descendants, his house and his throne. May there be the Lord's peace forever. And the chapter ends there in verse 45 with the blessing. But King Solomon will be blessed and David's throne will remain secure before the Lord forever. And at the end of verse 46, the kingdom was now firmly established or secure in Solomon's hands. It was important that Solomon continue to reign in peace and security. And so David gives him some clear advice for that to happen. Now the question we may be asking ourselves already as we heard that reading um, given was what relevance does that advice have for us today? You know, is this advice only for someone who is leader of a country? Or does it have an application to us normal people. We will never know complete peace and security in this life, either as a nation or as individuals. But peace and security is what we look forward to when the Lord comes again, when he takes us to be with him. But of course, in this life, we can still experience spiritual peace and security. We can enjoy them if we have been reconciled to God. We enjoy that peace. Even for many Christians in the world whose physical security is very much threatened. And so as we look at these instructions of David to to Solomon, hopefully there will be much in here that we can take away from it. And the first piece of advice that uh, David gives is um, is there in verse 2. It says, Be strong, Show yourself a man, which in this day can mean very different things. It can, uh, for some people, it may mean be confident, you know, be aggressive, be ambitious. Don't give up. Don't show any sign of weakness, whether it's emotional weakness or physical weakness. But when we look at the teaching of the Bible, when we look at the account in Genesis of the creation of man and woman and the different roles they're given according to their genders... The role of the male, as we were hearing this morning from from Jeff, was very much to do with leadership and responsibility within the family. The man is given a a leadership role. He is responsible for the rest of the family. And we will, incidentally, be starting a new um, men's discipleship group shortly, where we'll be looking at how to be a man of God. we'll give you more information about that in due course. But specific issues that apply to Christian men. Because one of the failings of men, particularly Christian men in society, is a failure to take responsibility. It's a, it's a passiveness, a, a lack of commitment. Um, but responsibility is, of course, not something that's limited to men. We are all responsible for our actions. Romans 14:12 says, each of us will have to give an account of himself to God. Now, clearly... Solomon's decisions here would have had a direct impact on the state of God's people. But we too need to ask ourselves, what impact do our actions have on God's people In the decisions we take in our thoughts, in our actions? Are we thinking of the good of the church or the good of ourselves? What sacrifices are we making? Solomon's leadership position, he would need to be strong because he would come under pressure from all sides, sometimes very subtle and manipulative, other times an outright challenge to his authority. He would have to take decisions which would be very painful, in which he may be severely criticised. And so he had to be sure he was doing the right thing. And if we are to give an account of ourselves to God, then we too need to be sure that we are doing the right thing. Which leads us on nicely to the next piece of advice, which uh, David gives, it's there in verse 3. He says, observe what the Lord, your God, requires. Walk in his ways and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements as written in the law of Moses, so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. This command occurs frequently throughout the Bible, particularly in the early books of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy as the people of Israel prepare to enter the promised land. God stresses them repeatedly through Moses, if they want to prosper, if they want to enjoy all the Lord's blessings, then they need to walk in his ways. And it's not so much a sense of, if you keep all these rules and laws to the letter, it's more, this is my instruction for your good. When we went to... Um, Live in Brazil a few years ago, we were given a manual about the, the customs, the the regulations, the culture of the country we're going to. And some of that was to ensure that we um were able to keep the law. Um quite a helpful thing to do. Um others were just to help us to integrate ourselves into the Brazilian way of living. Uh, and others were just for our own physical safety. And that was all for our benefit. You know, if we hadn't read it, we wouldn't have understood that although the law said that you have to stop at a red traffic light, um, late at night when you're coming back, um, it might actually be advisable to go straight through if you don't want your car to be carjacked. These were all instructions to help us to enjoy living in that country. And without them, we would have got into a real mess. And we can't claim that God hasn't given us his instruction. It's all there in his word. We just need to read it. We just need to obey it. It would be interesting to to see the results of the survey that um, Christine was doing this morning about Bible reading in our church. How much do we know God's word and obey it? I think the trouble with people in general, human beings, is that we always think we know best. And we can be given the wisest piece of advice. And yet, We may ignore it, or we may just muddle through. And I think putting us in families, as we were talking about this morning, gives us an idea of what God must feel, you know, as he tries to teach us, his children, his ways. And yet, we ignore them. And we know ourselves how frustrating it is when we give our children instruction in vice, and they think they know best. Well, verse 4 here also points to the fact that this is not simply about keeping rules that we can tick off and feel good about ourselves. It's about faithfulness to God and it's about the attitude of our hearts. Look at verse 4 There it says, And that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. It's interesting, isn't it, that when we think of the security of the political state of Israel today, it depends on negotiations with the uh, Palestinians, it uh, depends on walls being built along the West Bank, it depends on the involvement of other US and, and peace, peace brokers. And here, the clear instruction that Solomon has given to ensure the security of his people is to make sure that they walk faithfully before their God. The biggest threat to the peace and security of the kingdom was the obedience of the people of God to his law. And The biggest threat to our individual faith is not personal tragedy. It's not persecution. But it's actually disobedience to God. The biggest threat to us as a church, again, is not tragedy It's disobedience to God. It's sin. I had an email this week from the wife of uh, a guy I was at college with who's pastoring a small church in Leeds. And in the space of a couple of weeks in the church, the church um, has experienced the loss by a couple of uh, a child at full term. Church organist died after an operation. And a woman in her 40s died of cancer. And he's struggling to, to, to meet the emotional demands of the church. But churches, with the strength of the Lord, can deal with personal tragedy if they're strong in their faith. It actually often brings them together. It unites them. In Jesus' parable of the wise man who built his house on the rock, the foolish man who built his house on the sand, the message was that if you hear Jesus' words and are obedient to them, then whatever the storms of life that may hit you, whatever tragedies that may come upon you? You will not fail. You will not fall. What rips churches apart is not tragedy. It's moral disobedience. It's ignoring Jesus' words. And the worst thing about that is it's often not on the surface. It's not just the church leader caught in adulterous affair type of headline, but it's stuff going on under the surface in people's lives that no one knows anything about. It's in lives that don't display the fruit of the Spirit. There is no substitute for obedience to God's word. You may be incredibly gifted in all manner of ways, but none of that is worth anything if you are disobedient to God's law. God wants committed disciples. Well, by telling Solomon to be obedient to God's laws, David was saying that the biggest threat to the kingdom was from within. But of course there were other potential enemies that Solomon had to deal with. And so we come on to the next piece of advice that David gave to Solomon. And that was to deal wisely with the kingdom's enemies. David mentions three people here and he gives Solomon some instructions as how to deal with them. There's Joab, son of Beroiah. There's Barzillai of Gilead and the Shimei, son of Gera, Two enemies and a friend. To the friend who once helped David, he tells Solomon to show kindness. To the other two, he tells Solomon to deal with them. Deal with them according to your wisdom. You will know what to do. Which seems to be a bit of a euphemism for bump them off. And we see the gruesome details of that in the rest of the chapter. What we have here is just a summary of the crimes. If you want to read in your own time through to Samuel, you'll see the stories of these characters. And there was Joab who, it says here, killed two commanders of Israel's armies, Abner and Amasa. And we don't know why David himself didn't deal with him, but in accordance with Old Testament law, he should have been put to death for the murders that he committed. Shimei was... uh, loyal to David's predecessor, to Saul. And so it says then in 2 Samuel that he pelted David and his officials. He he called down curses on them. And again, David showed him mercy, but Shimei's guilt had not been dealt with. And as with many of these Old Testament stories, whilst it would have been an accepted thing at the time, there is a sense of shock to us. You know, that is the sort of thing that dictators do not God's leaders. I was watching the film, and we've uh, come across it, The Last King of Scotland last week. It's uh, I think loosely based on a sort of true story of a young uh, doctor, Scottish doctor, who goes out to Uganda at the time Idi Amin comes to power. And uh, by some coincidence, he happens to be around when Idi Amin needs a doctor, and uh, he's brought in, and he, and he helps him. And um, having impressed him, he invites him to be his own personal physician, and um, it's interesting the story, just the way in which this uh, naive Scottish doctor sees Inidi Amin as some sort of benevolent uncle, and then he's just gradually confronted with the reality of the serious crimes that he's committing, the reason people disappear is that they're being killed. And as Christians, the reason why these Old Testament stories shock us with their violence is because we live the other side of Jesus Christ in in terms of salvation history. What difference does that make? Well, in Old Testament times, the people of Israel represented God's kingdom. The laws God gave them were designed to, to keep them pure, to show that they were a nation set apart for him. They were protected physically by God from these other, what are described as wicked nations, nations rebellious against God. And often God's people were the agents of his justice. But when Christ came, he dealt with sin. He dealt with it by dying for sinners. He established a new kingdom. This wasn't a a physical kingdom now. This was a spiritual kingdom where the subjects of that kingdom were all those who wanted to be forgiven for their sin. Those who wanted to follow Christ as their king, their new king. Now, of course, physically, they were still in the world as we are today. Physically, we're still subject to, to human governments. Which raises the question, well, who are the enemies of God today? Who are the enemies of his kingdom? Well, in one sense, it hasn't changed that they are all those who oppose God and his, his people. But what has changed is our response to them. It is not a response of, well, let's just go and take them out. It is, as it says in Romans 12, to bless those who persecute you. It's to overcome evil with good. The reason being that because of Christ's sacrifice for all people, it is possible for anyone to turn to him, to repent of their sin, and become a part of that kingdom of Christ. Just think of the worst example you can think of, the, the Apostle Paul. Before he was struck down on that road to Damascus, he was somebody who was responsible for the persecution, the murder of God's people. The worst enemy of God, and yet, God showed mercy on him. But the question remains, are there any enemies of God that we should deal with? Those who threaten God's kingdom? Well, our main enemy, we are told in the, in the Bible, as Steve read out earlier, is, is the devil. It is Satan. He's the one, the Bible says, who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And we're told to resist him by standing firm in the faith. And so if we want to ensure that God's reign in our lives is secure, then one of the things we need to do is get rid of anything that may threaten it, to resist Satan. Satan. And so we have this very strong language which is used in many passages in the New Testament that deal with sin. His language was similar very much to the Old Testament language of putting to death these enemies. Let's just turn to uh, Colossians 3, which we've been looking at on Sunday mornings. A passage that was preached on a couple of weeks ago. <clears throat> Colossians 3, verse 5. It's on page 1184 of the Church Bibles. And here we have those words, put to death, therefore. But it's not here, people. It's put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived. But now, you must rid yourselves of all such things. Rid yourself of anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. In the same way that those enemies of King David represented a real threat to the security of the kingdom, In the same way that Solomon had to take drastic action to deal with them using godly wisdom. We need to take drastic action to deal with these symptoms of sin. If we are to protect our own lives and the spiritual health of our church. This is the way you used to walk, it says. But now you've got rid of these traces of sin in your lives. Jesus used equally severe language himself in Mark where he says, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's hyperbole, obviously, but it's it's saying if you're aware of these sinful traits in your life, then do something drastic about it. Confess it for a start. And not just to God, but confess it to a close friend to, to show that you are serious about wanting to do something about it. And if you are serious... You need to trace back the symptoms of sin, back to the root cause of it, because sin is triggered by something in our hearts. It arises because we want something else more than we want God. I've mentioned this book here before, You Can Change, by Tim Chester, and I'll probably mention it again sometime. Um, it is a great book. I'm um, seeing Irene over there. She's read it, and she can testify to that, um, I think if everybody in this church read this book and acted on it, it would radically change our church. Not because it's some sort of magic formula for for success, but because it would show that we take sin seriously. We want God to transform our lives by his power. We want to look at ourselves and say, what is it that is most important to me? As Tim Chester describes in the book, he says, Is life all about me? Is it is it my story in which God is just a minor character? Or is it God's story in which I am a minor character? There's um, lots of passages I could read out and quote from this book, but this is one and from a chapter entitled, What Desires Do You Need to Turn From? In other words, what sinful desires do you need to put to death? And um, he's very honest and open in his own struggles in the book, And he says this, he says, I found so much freedom simply by realizing that sinful desires are sinful. And he's talking about getting at them early. He says, I feel myself getting bitter. Once I might have fed my desire by reflecting on all the wrongs I endure. But I realize now that bitterness is grumbling against God's goodness. And so, in my best moments and with God's help, I try to stop it before it grows. I feel myself getting annoyed. Once I might have fed my desire by reflecting on other people's incompetence. But I realise now that I get annoyed because of my desire to be in control instead of trusting God's sovereignty. And so I I try to stop it before it grows. I feel myself getting angry once I might have fed my desire by reflecting on how I've been mistreated. But I realise now that I get angry because of my desire to justify myself instead of trusting in Christ's atoning work. And so I try to stop. Going back to Colossians, what is it in our hearts that causes our anger, our rage, our malice, our slander, our our filthy language? Is it it that the, the peace and the security of God's kingdom and his people are being threatened? Because when they are, we are right in being angry. That is a righteous anger. That is the anger that God would experience himself. Or is it that things are not going our way? Put to death the old sinful nature. And in place of that, put on something far more beautiful. If I, like David, were on my deathbed, and if I had some advice to pass on to my children, then I think there can't be much better than the words there from Colossians. Carry on from that passage I read in verse 12, if you've got it still there. He says, "Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other, and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues. Put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Clothe yourself with all that goodness. Or as Tim Chester as I conclude said, the verse that his dad gave him when he left home uh, at the age of nineteen uh, was from Proverbs four twenty three. I won't see if anybody you know that. He said it took him twenty years to fully understand the significance of it. Uh, hopefully we can grasp it quicker. It's Proverbs 4:23. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Protect your heart. Keep that secure, and you will be able to walk in God's ways. You will be able to enjoy his peace, his security, forever. Or in the New Living Translation, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life.